Our reading comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verses 11 through 20. It's on page 320 in your pew Bibles. Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 20. Now, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you to today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're crossing, you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away from, uh, turns away, and you're not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare you today, this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is word of the Lord. As um, Peter just mentioned, we've been exploring what it means to be an intergenerational community um, through the sermon series called A Community of Faith and Truth. Last week, we looked at the third third, the most seasoned generation, and today we are looking at the, the least seasoned generation. And again, we haven't, forgot, we haven't forgotten about the second generation. I'm actually part of that generation, and we'll come back to that next week. Um, during his sermon last week, Pastor Peter talked about a TikTok video that highlighted some of the differences uh, between these generations. He, in the video, he saw a, a baby boomer working really hard uh, in the afternoon on Friday while a millennial was looking at her watch, wondering what in the world she was still doing at work at 4 p.m. on Friday, right? And then the video showed a Gen Zer, rather her empty desk with a sign that read, out for the day, right? That was humorous enough, but to me, the real humor was the fact that Peter watched a TikTok video. And he actually used it in a sermon. I mean, this man doesn't just talk about being intergenerational. He actually lives it out, right? One of the common criticisms of the first generation, the first third, is that they have no work ethic. If you're a part of the second or the third generation, you cannot imagine that a worker would just take a day off, right? No work ethic. But if you're part of the first generation, that has nothing to do with work ethic. The way you see it, in order for you to be the best 
employee, best worker you can be, you first need to take care of yourselves. If you're part of that first generation, what you cannot understand is that anybody or somebody would force themselves to work extra on Friday instead of taking care of themselves. My point is that all three generations see this video and see it as a criticism of a different generation. But in reality, we should see the video as an acknowledgement that all different generations have different ways of understanding the world. If we are trying to create a harmonious intergenerational community, the first step ought to be acknowledging that our brothers and sisters from the first third have their own unique way of understanding the world. That has to be the starting point. So what is this unique way of the first third? To answer that question, we first need to consider the time and the contemporary cultural shifts that have shaped their worldview. And many books have been written on this topic, and they, almost all of them, point to Charles Taylor's A Secular Age as the uh, starting point, as a helpful resource for understanding the time and the cultural shifts that have shaped the worldview of the first third. And in his seminal book, Taylor argues that we live in an age that he calls an age of authenticity. And by authenticity, he means that as a meaning-making creature, a modern person looks inwardly to oneself as a source of meaning. On a very practical level, an authentic person is somebody who defines one's own freedom, identity, happiness, and purpose. Think about your favorite Disney song, right? I like, the, I like those Disney movies just as much as the next person, but when we consider those Disney movie songs from the last three decades, like um, Let It Go in Frozen, or from Frozen, or Reflection from Mulan, by the way, this is Asian uh, month, yay. Um, also, I am Moana from that movie called Moana, right? Um, when we listen to the words, we discover that all these songs touch on the common theme of not conforming to any ideas in order to be authentic selves and find their own happiness. Taylor's concept is not unique to the first third. This authenticity is not unique to the first third, but it is more widespread among that generation. Shaped by the age of authenticity, our brothers and sisters from the first third tend to seek meaning from within. To the first third, any societal or cultural expectations and norms are just an oppressive force standing in the way of discovering one's true authentic selves. In this age of authenticity, conformity is the arch enemy of human flourishing. Now against that cultural and societal backdrop, consider what the Bible teaches. Namely, it's called to Christ-likeness. In Romans 8.29, Paul says, God predestined us to be what? Conformed to the image of the Son. 
If in our reading this morning, Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 20, this passage seems to be at odds with the contemporary focus of inward-looking authenticity. Words like commands, obedience, decrees, and laws, those words make our passage sound demanding. And its either-or structure might sound confining or even oppressive to some people today. In other words, our scripture reading from Deuteronomy epitomizes a type of religious conformity that a modern person is supposed to avoid and escape. I go to the Saturday men's Bible study group here, um, and we've been studying the book called The Radical uh, Discipleship by John Stott. Um, The title of the opening chapter is Nonconformity. When I saw that, I was like, oh, this is different. So I started reading, and it became very clear that the idea of nonconformity came straight from Romans 12, 2, where it says, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Meaning, don't conform to the world, but what? Conform to the image of Jesus Christ. But the current narrative says, don't, conf- don't conform to anything. Don't conform to the world, not to any societal or cultural expectations, and do not conform, certainly never conform to Jesus Christ. Just be your authentic self. Can you feel the tension now between Scripture and the current narrative? Between conformity and authenticity? To be fair, Christianity does preach and teach being authentic selves, but the Christian idea of authenticity is not found in the self, but it is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Because we believe that he was the most authentic human being ever. He was the perfect human being. He exemplified what it meant to be authentically and truly human. Think about your journey with Christ. We are saved in order for us to grow into Christ, to be more like him. Our relationship with God always involves conformity. But in our age of authenticity, and especially to those of us who belong to that first third, this idea is simply not attractive. Do you know what these people find attractive these days? Being spiritual, but not religious. I'm sure many of us know somebody who would describe themselves that way. Or maybe some of you see yourselves that way. While those who identify as spiritual but not religious might believe in a higher power or um, uh, even the idea of God, they prefer looking inwardly to themselves for meaning instead of turning to God or his teachings. You might say that it's a nicer way of rejecting any sort of religious teachings. It's a statement of nonconformity. Recently, I attended a birthday dinner with about eight people, most of whom I was meeting for the first time, and for some reason, 
the, the conversation became about this thing called paganism. And I was like, whoa, that's interesting, right? Naturally, I, that piqued my interest, so I started listening. I learned that paganism is a popular spiritual movement that involves a, um, the practice of manifestation, the idea that you can think your dreams into reality. And according to this practice, there are two types of spirits in this world. There are spirits that help you and help you to create this desired reality. They are called good spirits. And there are bad spirits who oppose your dreams or hate on you or stand in the way of that dream becoming a reality. Those are bad spirits. Can you recognize the inward-looking, self-determining nature of this modern paganism? At its core is, again, nonconformity. The age of authenticity teaches us not to conform to anything because in this age, higher powers, spirits, forces, even God are supposed to conform to our human desires. Unfortunately, in some Christian circles and churches, people preach and teach that if you think it, God will make that happen for you which to me seems very contradictory to the idea of following not our will, but God's will. We must recognize that this shift is sweeping through our culture and society like wildfire. And there's no guarantee that in this age of authenticity, all of us, and especially those of us who belong to the first third will not be fed this misleading information on social media or in our peer circles. So what do we do? What can the church do to teach and preach being conformed to the image of the Son to a generation that does not like conformity, that sees conformity as the arch enemy of human flourishing? And more importantly, if you're part of that generation, if you're part of the first third How do you respond to the Christian emphasis on conformity? And what kind of contributions can you make to create this harmonious intergenerational community? As I continue to work with the first third at this church, those are some of the questions that keep running through my head. And the most useful resource on this topic for me has been the Bible. More than Charles Taylor's A Secular Age or any fancy books on faith formation or um, uh, youth ministry, the Bible has been the most helpful. And this passage that we read this morning, I find particularly resourceful because it's, it's been very eye-opening to me in that it challenges the common notion of conformity. It challenges the way we think about conformity. When we say conformity, we tend to think what? Indoctrination, blind obedience, and rules to follow. And the passage does demand all of those things. But we need to also read our scripture reading in the context of Deuteronomy. After the 40-year journey through the wilderness, the nation of Israel has finally arrived at the plains of Moab. They can see the promised land from where they are. They're ready to enter the land, that, but their leader, Moses, cannot. So he gives his farewell sermon, and that's the book of Deuteronomy. 
Our reading from Deuteronomy 30 is, is his climactic conclusion. But we need to note that before this conclusion, before Moses calls Israel to conform to the word of God, he spends 28 chapters laying out why they should do so. I have set before you life and death. Now, choose life. He's not simply indoctrinating them or calling them to blind obedience. No, he has done his utmost work to ensure that these people understand why they need to choose God. And that's this, this idea of choosing God is not an impossible task. Sisters and brothers, one thing that we haven't done well as a church over the years is that we haven't done a good job laying out why we should conform. We have spent a considerable amount of time and energy telling people, especially, especially our young people, to follow X, Y, and Z. Do this and do that. But we haven't spent the same amount on making sure that they understand not just what to follow, what to conform to, but why they need to conform. For example, parents, do you spend your Sunday morning telling your children to just hurry up and get ready for church, or do you explain to them why they need to go to church, why it is important to go to church, therefore hurry up and get ready? Right? I mean, we need to tell them, but do we do a good job explaining why they need to do certain things? Because Moses' command here follows that thorough explanation. It's not, just an, it's not just a command. It's a persuasive appeal to the people based on solid reasoning and evidence. Moses does not tell Israel to conform. Just, he doesn't just tell Israel to conform. He also shows why they need to conform. Likewise, Jesus did not just tell the world that he was a son of God, the anointed savior of the world. He also showed them that he was. I mean, the Roman centurion saw the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and he said, what? Surely he was the son of God. Thomas saw the marks on Jesus' hands and said, what? My Lord, my God. Likewise, the church cannot just be telling things we need to show and tell because that's what the body of Christ is called to do. We need to display, we need to explain why we need to conform to the word of God. And that will create an environment where genuine intergenerational interactions and conversations can take place, where the second and the third thirds invite the first third to ask questions about the faith and even challenge some of those practices and beliefs that we held or we hold. And we need to remind ourselves that challenging is not necessarily a bad thing. It often prompts us to ask why we believe in the things we believe in and why we do the things that we do as Christians. It leads to sharpening, enriching, and refining our faith 
Ask any youth group leaders or Sunday school teachers whether they have received some questions from the first third that eventually led to their personal growth. I have. Historically, those questions have also been the catalyst um, for the church becoming a more faithful bride. If we weren't for those brave Christians, both black and white, challenging the traditional understanding of the Bible, we might still have slavery in this country. And if we think about what's, what we're preaching here, our Reformed pr- traditions stand on the shoulders of those who challenged the predominant, the dominant theology of the time. In this age of authenticity, those challenging questions might just do the work inviting inviting all of us to consider what it means to be a harmonious intergenerational community. Those questions might just help us to reimagine how we can live out our faith together. So I ask my first, third brothers and sisters in Christ, ask questions. Ask questions about the faith. Ask questions about the Bible. Ask questions about who you are in Christ. Ask those challenging questions that bring all of us back to Scripture. I'm still going to ask you to conform to the Word of God. I'm going to do that. But I'm also asking you not to just conform because I told you so. Don't conform because your pastors, your elders, your teachers, or your parents tell you to conform. Conform because you have read the Bible and examined the choices clearly set out before you. Choose to conform to the Word of God because you understand that this is the way of life. It is not an easy path. Moses reminds us of that. But it's also not beyond our reach. The Word is near us, and it is within our grasp and capability. In fact, when Moses said these words, he could not have possibly imagined how near the Word of God would be to the people of God. Today, the Word is not just near us, it's in us. Because the incarnate Word of God came into the world in Jesus Christ, and He now dwells in us in His Spirit. And that Spirit enables and helps us to reach our final predestined reality. Not just as individuals, but as a community. We together are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, who is perfectly, authentically, and truly human. Moses reminds us in verse 20 that the Lord Jesus, our incarnate word, is our life. And conforming to his image is not a grave impediment standing in the way of human flourishing. No, it is the only way to experience life to the fullest. So I ask you one more time, choose life by choosing to follow Christ. And as you do so, know that the rest of us are here to help you. You don't have to struggle by yourself. Let us come alongside of you. Let us struggle with you. Let us help you find answers that you're looking for. 
Do this in a community. Do it with your community, with those who came before you and those who will follow you. That's why God has placed you in this intergenerational community. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for this community. We thank you that we have many generations in this body. Now give us the strength to live out what we just have heard today. Give us the curiosity to search your word and ask questions. Give us the imagination to apply your word to ourselves and to our community. Give us the faith to choose you. And give us the grace of being conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.